You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to The Worship Review with your two favorite podcast hosts, Colin and Tyler. And today we are wrapping up the fourth series. Colin, this is a series that we started six months ago. You're joking. I'm serious. Oh my goodness. It was interrupted by our second series of Christmas music. Wow. (laughs) It doesn't feel like it's been that long. No, but I guess Christmas cometh and interrupteth. It doth. And we looked at 20 songs during the series, and it, it marked a return for us to looking at contemporary Christian music and evangelical worship music more generally. And throughout the series, we've been fortunate to receive lots of listener feedback. And so our plan for this episode is to recapitulate some of the discussions throughout this fourth series, and then talk about some listener feedback. So Uh, With that being said, Colin, why don't we jump into uh, listener feedback? During episode seven, which was our discussion of Blessed Be Your Name by Matt Redman, uh, we discussed briefly the term worship leader. And I think it would be worthwhile to go into uh, this term a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper and ask ourselves, to what extent is this a useful term for describing the person with the guitar up front? Um, And if other terms exist, uh, why not use them? So, for example, music leader exists, but in the evangelical sphere, no one says music leader. They tend to say worship leader for that position. Yeah, it's interesting because you have a variety of different views on what this person does and even whether there should be such a person. So in some church denominations, there is no separate person. There's just a there's just a person up front that that is a, a pastor or even a priest in some cases, and that person is responsible for the whole of what we might think of as the worship service. So when there are songs, that person announces that a song is going to be sung and may even sing the song in a microphone, or maybe not, but certainly would probably sing it from up front. The worship leader thing seems like an innovation of evangelicalism and maybe you know if that's true or not but it that seems to be the the impetus for this is it's 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 almost a separate person a a person that's between that's not quite a pastor but not just a musician either and it seems to be this almost quasi pastoral position yes it's fascinating to think about because the uh in, in many circles, the eldership is distinguished according to three roles. So you can be a, a prophet, a priest, or a king, so to speak. And of course, uh, these are ultimately fulfilled only by Christ. But um, we have in the Old Testament these different roles that leaders of God's people would adopt. And so um, the pastor, which of course in Latin is just the shepherd, Um, is one who shepherds his people. He's responsible for preaching as well. But then the worship leader, we've kind of injected into this and he takes some of the pastoral roles. He's caring for the, maybe the hearts of the people there. He's drawing from the pastor in some element of instruction and care for the people, but he's also drawing from the priest in leading God's people in worship in particular, 
which is interesting. If we look at the Old Testament priests, uh, they were the ones who were responsible for leading God's people in worship, offering sacrifices, blowing trumpets, for example, things like this. Um, and in the uh, modern church, the the role of the priest has been um, transformed in some ways in that uh, Christ, our high priest, fulfills it. And then with uh, with the office of elder, there are certain sacraments that are reminiscent of priestly duties before. Um, but the worship leader is is a novel creation in and of itself. Seem, it seems to be, um, it, it would seem, I should say, to be unique to evangelicalism. And yet this role exists in some Catholic churches. It exists in... Um, in Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches, which will have someone who leads the music. Um, and I even know that the cantor in a lot of Jewish temples and synagogues uh, f- takes on this sort of role. So it, I wouldn't say it's a modern evangelical creation as much as maybe a creation of, of modern religious experience more generally. That's fascinating, Tyler. And, you know, you mentioned this worship leader person as taking pastoral roles. And that seems to me to be I mean, we haven't made value judgments yet, but that seems to me to be better than, I mean, I've seen situations where the so-called worship leader is basically just a musician. That that person isn't even engaged really in those pastoral aspects that you mentioned. They're just a talented person that is uh, capable of singing music and showing emotion on their face and, you know managing music, I guess, basically. And managing the team of people that does the music. Right, exactly. And yet I would say, I would inject some caution here too, because in taking on those roles, uh, the worship leader has um, assumed certain responsibilities that traditionally were not assigned to him. And um, this can also cause some, some problems too, if say the person is in reality merely a musician, but fulfilling this office or this role that uh, was not, for example, like many elderships elected or appointed, but really um, created in a sense. So I think it can come with some real, real problems. Another issue with the term worship leader as just a term is that it, it functionally is, um, it is an, it is a term used by people within a, um, within the group. It's an in-group term. And if you went to maybe a, um, a secular pagan or an atheist or an agnostic who wasn't particularly familiar with how churches in general operate, and you said he's a worship leader, they might say, well, what does that mean exactly? And this gets even more abstract when you come up with new terms for this role, like, oh, he's the, he's the cantor, or oh, he's the presenter. Then you get even more complicated um, layers of this of this term, and so the question, I guess, is why continue to to use it? Well, I was wondering, it what if what if the term was worship service leader, mm-hmm. right? What if you put in there the word service, because then you're specifying that this person is managing or administering the you know the the organization of the service now that's not exactly descriptive of what this person often does usually this person is just administering the musical part of the right worship service 
In fact, in many churches, I know mine is one of them, the uh, service is uh, organized and even uh, transitions are declared by one of the ministers. Yeah, by a pastor. Exactly. And so the pastor will say, and now we're going to take the offering and then the offering will happen. It's typically not the worship leader in a lot of evangelical churches that says, and now we're going to take the offering. Yeah. So... Uh, I think th- to answer may- to answer the question, why do we continue to use it? Uh, because the role exists, uh, even if it's been poorly defined or not defined at all. I was trying to find a Wikipedia page for this term, and it doesn't seem like there is one. That's interesting. And yet, when you search for it, when you Google it, oh, there are the dozens and dozens of articles. So it seems like there's a, there's a Wikipedia page missing, or maybe there's a gap in our collective understanding of American evangelical Christianity that needs to be filled. Because this term would really... Uh, be served well by a clear definition. And it seems like we have some decent working definitions, one who is responsible for music and or the um, the operation and deployment of a worship service. The fact is the term exists. It, it has become a thing. Whether, whether it should have become a thing, should still be a thing, whether that thing doesn't really have much of a clear definition. The fact is as problematic and as incomprehensible as the worship leader term is, to not use it, I think would be even less clear hmm. and less comprehensible. I agree. And to underscore my point before this term does not have a Wikipedia page itself, but there is a subheading of a Wikipedia page for contemporary worship, which I think it's useful to read this because you get an idea of what this term means to a lot of people. Um, A worship leader is normally a musician, often a guitarist or pianist with good singing ability, whose role it is to lead the congregational singing. The worship leader has a prominent role in contemporary worship services and is responsible for much of the spiritual direction of the meeting and often will choose the songs that will be sung. This can be contrasted with traditional churches where the entire service is normally led by a member of the clergy. And so this, again, gets at what we were talking about before, where roles of clergymen have been delegated to this this novel role. Uh, Another interesting term that we use a lot that I think would be worth discussing is the term evangelical because this is, I would say this is probably an exonym rather than an endonym. And this, these two terms just mean a name used by outsiders. So exonym versus a name used by the community itself. Endonym. I don't know how many people would um, introduce themselves to a fellow Christian and say, Oh yeah, hi, I'm, I'm calling, I'm an evangelical, Um, but, but it's more often used from outside and so I wonder if it's even useful for uh, categorization anymore, because it really just means, well, what does it mean? I think in the American vernacular, it means currently a person who is a Christian probably would describe themselves as a born again Christian, will likely be politically right of center, although I don't know whether we can say that anymore. But I think there are some political connotations with evangelical. It's a person who has not necessarily confessional beliefs about Scripture, but has what we might think of as principled beliefs about Scripture. Like they would say that the Bible is truly God's Word. They would tend to take the Bible literally. An evangelical would be thought of as somebody who who really believes. Like they aren't just simply engaging in church because of family tradition or because of, you know, some kind of cultural reason, but that they, they truly do believe in God and scripture 
Mm-hmm. And these are, I mean, the, the belief in the Bible as the word of God is also, I think, correctly described as a fundamentalist belief as well. Yeah. As a doctrine I mean, I, I thought about using the term fundamentalist, but... I think that term now has negative connotations that, for some yeah. reason. But I think it's funny because I think evangelical is now moving that way, especially since uh, the evangelicals became a prominent voting block in the 70s and 80s, um, where you used to distinguish between um, maybe fundamentalists, evangelicals, and mainline Protestants. Mainline, yeah. Now evangelical just means Protestant, roughly, with some kind of uh, conservative beliefs on something. I'm not even sure if belief in the Bible is the word of God is that thing. It seems like sometimes it's more social or identity You're politics. Right. You're right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting term. It's not one that the community of uh, people def- defined from outside as evangelical uses for itself, but it still seems kind of worthwhile for, at least for our purposes on this podcast, because we're looking at the music that these people are singing in their churches. Yeah, and it's funny because you even have within the church, broadly, you have people who might go to the same church and believe the same things, and one of them might think of themselves as evangelical, and one of them might not. Right. They might think of themselves as maybe confessional, or, yeah. Yeah, or any other number of theological yeah. backgrounds before they think of themselves in that sociological category. Yeah, there's a church in the area where I live that removed the name evangelical from their church recently. And I watched the lengthy explanation for this. They spent like three hours talking about it to their members. Um, I don't know why I was so curious about another church doing this, but I was. Um, I think I think it was during the time when we were all stuck in our houses, and so I didn't have much, much to do. Uh, anyway, so I watched this video. The pastor of that church spent a lot of time talking about political connotations. That, to him, seemed to be the big identifier of this term and why that church felt like it was no longer appropriate to use that term because for outsiders it had political connotations and they thought well our church isn't really about politics we got an email from daniel j mount uh, which uh, informed us that second corinthians 120 in the new king james version sounds like this For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. And so Mount mentioned that this line did not sound strange to him at all. It did not sound funny to his ears, but in fact, it seemed uh, quite scriptural. And it's possible that Phil Wickham was just working directly from that verse in the New King James Version. Ah, Great. Uh, Boy, we could have used him on that episode. We sure could. (laughs) (laughs) Um, More listener feedback. So uh, this is a little bit of a fun one. Do you remember when we were talking about um, how Chris Tomlin sort of resembles Aaron Paul? I even gave him the quantifier Aaron Pauls on one episode. That's right. Uh, Apparently, I'm not the first to make this. It doesn't surprise (laughs) me, this uh, connection. And at least since 2013, people have been tweeting that Chris Tomlin and Aaron Paul might have been separated at birth. So so like with most of your so-called original thoughts, it wasn't really original. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything is derivative, Colin. Don't you know the postmodern... Like there's a guy sipping espresso and smoking a cigarette right now, and he just says that, and he's so smart for saying that. I saw a webcomic, and it was an image of a bunch of people in the subway, and, you know, about five people, and there was a thought bubble going up from each of them. The thought bubble was actually just one big thought bubble that they were all thinking at the same time, which was something like, man, you know, these people are so plain and (laughs) uninteresting. They don't have big thoughts like me or something, and it was just, yeah, all these people imagining that they were profound and 
spectacular and thoughtful and everybody else was just kind of a drone and a, mm. a nothing. Mm. How fitting. delightfully and comically cynical. Yeah. I don't even know why I made that point. It's something to do with... Because my thoughts are not unique and they're That's not right. profound. That's right. Another question that I think would be worth answering, Colin, a more open question, uh, which we've hinted at before. We use the CCLI, the Christian Copyright Licensing International, uh, lists for determining which songs we do on this podcast. It helps us to... Uh, to be covering the songs that are actually being sung in the church because as people perform these songs, they're required to pay the copywriters. And so they uh, inform the CCLI that they're doing the songs. But other metrics for song popularity exist. For example, we could look at Billboard Christian charts for each country. We could look at uh, Billboard Christian charts over time. We could look at different decades, mm. uh, songs that were popular. We could look at the Dove Awards, the Christian Music Awards, and see who received which award and for what purpose. Uh, Colin, uh, what do you think about these alternate metrics uh, for the podcast? I like the CCLI because it gives us insight, as you've said, into the songs that are sung in the church. We have done a series, Series 3, which looked at international songs and to determine which songs were popular in which countries. I think we did use the billboard. Is that right, Tyler? Does that seem right to you? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm actually not opposed to that. In fact, we have discussed potentially doing a series on like songs that have won Dove Awards, you know, in the last 20 years and, you know, each top song. But yeah, I'm not against using those metrics. And uh, if listeners have additional metrics that we might use, that would be good. And maybe at some point, who knows, maybe we also do like songs that are not widely sung in the churches, but maybe should, that sort of thing. I mean, there's, there, you know, we could, we could go a lot of different ways with this, your podcast. Yeah. And if listeners have a, a series they'd like, or they have ideas for something, or even guests they'd like to hear us interview, we would welcome that kind of feedback from people. I would say for, for my sake, as you mentioned, we have done billboard charts in the past, and it's pretty interesting to see what's going on in different parts of the world at the same time. Uh, we haven't really done a chronological comparison directly. Now, we did do a series on old hymns that had been redone. So it yeah. might be worthwhile to do a series just on old hymns in themselves and mm. see uh, what comes up. I think we, there were some songs that we actually looked at and said, uh, I like the old hymn, but I don't like this version of it as it's been redone. And so that's open. But as far as the CCLI rankings are concerned, uh, as I said, initially, it's useful to be to some degree current. And so we can actually address the songs that people are likely to encounter in the church as a whole, not saying that necessarily our listenership is representative of the church at whole as, as no. a whole. In fact, it probably isn't. Um, but we can hopefully address some common concerns that people have and even common praises that people would have about a song mm -hmm. um, before or as they are appearing in churches um, rather than as we've seen with some denominations, requ being required to release an entire statement on certain worship songs yeah. or other ones. Um, so 
I think if our goal is to remain uh, relevant to what's currently being sung in the church, then we have to, at some level, confine ourselves to that. With that being said, I'm open to uh, branching out. Yeah, and I'll add to that the series where we went off the CCLI and did the billboard actually expanded our listenership quite a bit because some of those songs from South Africa and Nigeria and so on and so forth have been uh, some of our most popular episodes. And those people that listen to those episodes seem to have stuck with the podcast. Yeah, so we're really glad, we tell. glad to have them still. Yeah, so, you know, as it, it will be good for us to find ways to, to go off the, the CCLI, and I think that will be both interesting and for listeners, but also I think will help grow the podcast. Another question that we've addressed before, to what extent, Colin, do you think it's useful in worship to declare a gesture that you would do, that you would perform, but then not actually do it. Is that the same thing as lying or is that different? Is there a sense in which, and I'm, I, wait, I probably should slow down with all the questions and just say, so what do you think, Colin? What do you think about, say, for example, here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God, but then not really bowing down. Yeah, this is something I don't have an answer yet. And I think this is a question that I'm doing a lot of long thinking about. There's some, there are a variety of these questions that I've, been wrestling with or might wrestle with over a long time like as you know like i'm thinking a lot about the second commandment right now too i'm just like reflecting on what that means and you know what are the implications of it and i don't want to violate the second commandment well so too i'm wrestling with this exact question that you ask if we especially if we're singing something that's scriptural like there there are commands in scripture to do certain things uh so for example first timothy 2 8 says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, you know, is that a command that when we pray, we should pray with our hands lifted? Like, have we been, like, we don't see in Scripture that we should close our eyes when we pray. We just do it. I, I don't know exactly why we do it, but we, we just sort of do that. And we're supposed to look down which I guess maybe is something like bowing, which also is a scriptural command. We have command in, elsewhere in scripture to bow. So my point, I guess all I'm saying is there are definitely commands in scripture to do certain things. And I don't want to be breaking those commands, but I also don't want to be adding commands when these aren't really commands. Like, are, like to, are some of these things cultural? Or are some of these statements descriptive where really what scripture is doing is describing something that people might have done or would have done or could do but are not necessarily imperatives that we must do and or maybe we must not do them except in certain circumstances so that i don't know but i i think if we take god's word seriously we do need to actually reflect on these sorts of things like this is not a pedantic thing so that's just a short way. I guess I didn't quite answer your question yet, but that's a short way of me saying, I think this is really a grave thing, actually. And so I'm trying to think about it. I'm trying to think about it speedily. I don't want to just languish in purgatory where it's like, oh, I'll always think about that. I, I'm trying to re come to a resolution, but I don't know. For listeners, just to be clear, 
uh, Colin used that word purgatory uh, rhetorically and figuratively. <laughs> okay. um, but if scripture commands me, for example, to um, bow down before God, um, I know I will bow down. Yeah. And sometimes when I pray, I do bow down. And when we pray in corporate worship, I don't bow down. Um, I might bow my head. Yeah. Uh, am I disobeying that command? I, I don't think so. Um, because there is a sense in which that uh, command has been fulfilled by me in the past. I have bowed down. Is being fulfilled sometimes when I bow my head. Whether or not bow down means genuflect, really like bend the knee. Um, and will be fulfilled one day uh, when Christ returns. And um, maybe even at present, regardless of what my physical body is doing, is being, uh, I'm, I am bowing down spiritually and revering God spiritually in prayer. Uh, I think we do also have to keep away from, because that last point is very tenuous, because that can, I think, fall into a kind of Gnosticism where we deny the reality of the physical experience if we take mm -hmm. that to its extreme. Like, oh, I don't need to fulfill this command because it's fulfilled spiritually. Yeah. Uh, then I think you can fall into a kind of, uh, yeah, heresy. There's some danger there for sure. And this is a real challenge, especially if your church, uh, for example, is reformed and doesn't, uh, doesn't use worship instruments, doesn't use instruments during worship, and the Psalms declare that instruments are to be used. Yeah. Um, I think even really confessional people will have to, uh, they have a hard time because they have to explain how these were confined to Old Testament worship and are no longer um, used in, in New Testament worship. So um, this isn't just a problem of, say... A charismatic church no, or something. Yeah. It's not just the problem of even just evangelical worship, yeah. like here I am to bow down. This is a problem that we all have to address and... Uh, I would also say it's possible for a uh, command to be binding and to, um, like, say, for example, that First Timothy passage that you read, um, that is expressing Paul's desire for right. prayer. Um, it is not necessarily setting forth a template by which all prayer must therefore be done yep. in all times Paul and places. Paul doesn't say, I received this command from God. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm not even going to that point. That yeah. would be another argument, too, to say, let's distinguish between Paul's desire and God's command. I'm just saying... Um, whatever your stance on that, um, even if it were, even if I grant that it's God's command in Paul's words, which as you're saying, you don't necessarily need to infer, um, even if I uh, grant that, it does not mean that it's a normative principle that has yeah. to be adopted all of the time. Like, yeah, um, yeah, it, it, because then you would just have too many conflicting statements. Is it possible to um, be prostrate on the ground, but also lift up your hands. Like anatomically, is that even really a sustainable position to <laughs> sure. hold yourself in? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds funny because it is kind of absurd, but this is the problem of being logically consistent. Sounds like planking or something. But okay, so, I mean, we don't have to waffle around on this too much. I guess I would just finish my thoughts on this by saying I have not found a lot of theological writing on this topic, which is, I think, also what's causing me to delay or just forcing me to take some time on coming down on a position on this. And maybe, you know, if there are some theologians that are listening to this podcast, first of all, why? But no, no, <laughs> what, you know, it, but it, it would be great if some folks who know a lot more about this than I do would, and know a lot more about scripture and hermeneutics and all of that would 
would think about this question yeah. or if somebody knows of somebody who has thought about it that I just haven't been able to find, I would very much appreciate having some literature to read. What I, what I find troubling is that you might be saying something that is dishonest to God. And that is a grave and terrifying thing. Yeah. At the same time, we also see examples in scripture of people um, doing things of their own invention in worship or uh, in a sacred or holy place that God is not pleased with oh, too. And so, yeah. I, and I think this is, this explains, for example, the reform position on, on so many things that um, for, they do not argue permissibility from silence. They argue caution from silence yeah. and, and uh, abstention from silence. Yeah. And so uh, this is really more of a philosophical question. I would say in general, if, and this is a good principle, if my conscience feels dishonest by saying something that I'm not doing, I would, it would be better for me yeah. not to say it. Well, then it's sin anyway, because you're sinning against your conscience, right. right? And Paul makes that really, really clear. If you think something is sin, and then you're violating that, you are committing a sin of conscience, even if you're not actually committing a sin. Right, exactly. So in in uh, dubious cases or in gray areas, listen to your conscience, because yeah. God is speaking to you by that. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this first half of our series for wrap up episode we will be back next week with the second half of this discussion thank you take care you've been listening to the worship review please subscribe to the podcast leave a comment or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com we accept donations at anchor fm slash the worship review and patreon.com slash the worship review thanks for listening and we'll see you next week